Amen. If you have a Bible, let me invite you to turn with me to Matthew chapter 5 as we continue studying the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew chapter 5, you'll find this on page 810 of the Pew Bible. So far in the Sermon on the Mount, this first sermon of Jesus in the New Testament, we haven't heard Jesus teach us anything about his view of God's law. And if there's one thing the Israelites and the Jews were known for, it was the law of God. He's announced himself to be the king of a kingdom not of this world, the kingdom of heaven. He's uh, told us what his citizens are like. They're poor in spirit. They're people who mourn for their own sins. They're meek. They hunger and thirst for righteousness. They're merciful. They're peacemakers and such. Uh, And they're blessed by God to be so. They can grow in that, of course. And he's not only told us he's the king and he has citizens, he's told us that his citizens are his ambassadors in this world. We're ambassadors of his kingdom to the kingdoms of this world. We are to be salt, the salt of the earth. We are to be light, the light of the world. These are the kinds of things Jesus has already said. But what he hasn't commented on is, what does he think of God's moral law? What does he think about God's rules for how we're to live our lives, God's commandments? And of course, even if we're not asking that question, Uh, His followers certainly would have been curious to know. Is he going to replace the law of God? Is he going to change it, modify it, replace it, get rid of it completely? What's he going to do? Well, in verses 17 to 20, he tells us what he's going to do. And then in verses 21 to 48 to the end of the chapter, which we'll look at in days ahead, he's going to illustrate what he means by these things with six illustrations when he talks about um, uh, he talks about anger, he talks about lust and divorce and oath-taking and retaliation and loving our enemies. But here in verses 17 to 20, which is what we're going to look at this day, uh, we want to ask the question, what, what is Jesus' own relationship to the law of God? And what does he say his disciples' relationship ought to be to the law of God? So let's think on these things. Matthew chapter 5, verses 17 through 20, hear now the word of God. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly, I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Amen. This is God's word. Let's look to him in prayer. Thank you for the gift of your son, who is the uh, shepherd, brother, friend of his people, uh, a guide 
to the lost, a teacher and a lover of uh, our souls. We pray that you'd have mercy upon us all and teach us your word, good shepherd. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. So, (coughs) pardon me. We might wonder, what does the study of God's law have to do with the gospel of grace, right? After all, didn't the apostle John say, John chapter 1, very famously, right? The law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. And Paul says, you know, hasn't Christ delivered us from the law so that we are no longer under the law, but under grace? And he has said that. And if we're free from the law, right, then why even consider it? But then, if it's not worth considering, I mean, if that's our position, why is Jesus teaching on the law? Evidently, he thinks it's important for us to consider. Now, some people might say, yeah, but isn't Christianity, I mean, when you get done with Jesus' teaching, isn't it really about loving Jesus? Well, then what does Jesus mean in John chapter 14 when he says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments? Or what does the Apostle Paul mean in Romans 13 when he says love is the fulfilling of the law? Surely you've seen, you've experienced, you've you've puzzled over this relationship of law and grace, law and love in the Christian life. And it causes a lot of confusion for people, of course. It's, It's not surprising that it does and it's not surprising that John Newton, who wrote Amazing Grace also wrote to a friend in a letter, ignorance of the nature and design of the law is at the bottom of most religious mistakes. It's a bad view of God's law that leads to or is the root of self-righteousness and the root of legalism and the root of antinomianism or anti-lawism or, or a licentious view of the law. And it leads... Not understanding this relationship and dynamic leads to all kinds of anxiety in our hearts and, 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 and uncertainty about our assurance or inconsistency in the way that we live as Christians. Jesus knows we're likely to be confused, prone to make mistakes, uncertain of what he uh, thinks about these things, and he knows that we can't understand them or His relationship to the Old Testament law and prophets or the role of the law of God in our lives or his teaching and how it differs from the scribes and Pharisees of his day or any of these things. If he doesn't himself explain the place of the law in his life and ours. So he says, verse 17, do not think that I have come to abolish. He tells us what to think, but he says, don't think for yourself about this. Don't assume what I think about this. Think, use your mind, right? But think what I think Jesus is saying. That's discipleship. That's following Jesus, right? He doesn't just leave it up to us to work out these things. So here he is teaching about the law of God. And any true disciple of Jesus will want to know. What's the place of the law of God in our lives and in his? So that's what he speaks about. Three headings today as we think through this issue. Uh, First, in verses 17 and 18, you see Jesus talk about his own relationship to the law of God. At verse 19, you you see him turn to talk about his disciples' relationship to the law of God. 
And at verse 20, in talking about that, he critiques the scribes and Pharisees' uh, relationship to the law of God. So we want to think about those three things in the first place. Verses 17 and 18. The relationship of Jesus to the law of God. And what does he say? He says, I came not to abolish it, but to fulfill it. Do not think, verse 17, that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. I'm not here to destroy them, to get rid of them, to wipe them out of your Bible, to say they don't matter, or, um, or, or simply uh, to endorse them. But I'm here to fulfill them. And the question, of course, is what does it mean that he came to fulfill them? I've not come to abolish, but to fulfill. Well, in a general sense, in the first place, he came to fulfill the whole Old Testament scriptures in the Law and the Prophets, which is just shorthand for the whole Old Testament. Now, we've seen this all along in the Gospel of Matthew. And if you just remember Matthew chapter 1, uh, Matthew tells us that Jesus came in fulfillment of the Old Testament promises and prophecies. Chapter 1, he was descended from David and Abraham, which the Messiah had to be. He was born of a virgin, as miraculous as that is. Chapter 2, he was born in Bethlehem, as promised. And yet he was driven to and then called out of Egypt in fulfillment of promise and settled in Nazarene that he might be called, or Nazareth, that he might be called a Nazarene. Chapter 3, he was preceded in ministry by uh, one, a voice crying in the wilderness. That was John the Baptist in fulfillment of prophecy. And in chapter 4, he ministered in the Galilee of the Gentiles by the shores of the sea as a light to the nations. All of that in fulfillment of the words of the prophets, just so far in Matthew, right? He fulfills it, and he fulfills how much of it? All of it. In fact, verse 18, he says, For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until it's accomplished. And, and what he, when he says iota or dot, as our translation has it, some say jot or tittle. There are other translations. Basically, it's referring to the smallest Hebrew letter, the yod, which, is, which basically looks like a little comma, but it's raised up. Uh, and then it's also, secondly, referring the tittle to the tiniest little tick mark at uh, the ends of a Hebrew letter that distinguishes it from another that letter that looks exactly the same without that little tick mark. So two very tiny little marks, he says, even those will not, will not pass from the law. And, and so uh, nothing is ultimately lost in the Old Testament in the coming of Jesus. Uh, either immediately at his first coming or certainly in finalization at his second coming, the law shall be fulfilled, not abolished. And this just points, let's just pause there and reflect at what a high view of the Old Testament Jesus had. And has, of course. Our view of Scripture ought to be determined by His. We shouldn't say in our hearts, I really like the Sermon on the Mount, but I don't like the law given at Mount Sinai. I really like um, the prophecies about Jesus, but not all that um, blood of the Lamb stuff He fulfilled 
or the uh, ethics of Jesus? Eh, not so much. We shouldn't say, in other words, you know, I like the New Testament, but I don't like the Old Testament. I mean, I, I know you all have your favorite passages, but we shouldn't discount, because, because the Old Testament, as others have said it, and I've said it to you before, the Old Testament is like the bud of a rose, and the New Testament is that rose in full flower. The Old Testament uh, is, is like an artist's sketch in black and white, and the New Testament is that same sketch, but in full and living color. The new was in the old, concealed, and the old is in the new revealed. Jesus, we saw in Hebrews, isn't against Moses. He's for Moses. In fact, it says Moses was a servant in God's house. Jesus is the builder of God's house. But it's one house, not two. They worked in tandem in different ways, but in unity. And you can't understand Jesus without then the Old Testament. That doesn't mean we understand it all. That doesn't mean we don't scratch our heads with confusion and questions, of course. How does it apply? What portions um, of, the, of the law do we understand Jesus fulfilled already? And so we don't, for instance, sacrifice animals because he's the final one sacrifice of all to end all sacrifices. That's an easy one. But there are other questions. What I'm just saying is, upon reflection, is that really, at the end of the day, you don't have to have all your questions answered, but your sympathy ought to be, out of devotion to Jesus, to embrace the whole Bible as the Word of God to you. Because it is the Word of God, and Jesus thought highly of it. But notice, then, not only did he come to fulfill, as we pointed out, the prophets, certainly, with their prophetic utterances, but the law itself, the, the Torah, the, the, the instruction of God, even the commandments of God. He'll, he'll speak specifically of commandments in verse 19. And there are three ways he fulfilled it I want to highlight. In, in the first place, he fulfilled the law of God by his perfect obedience to its precepts. Galatians 4, verse 4 says, When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law. Meaning, he came in fulfillment of its promise, but he also came to live under its requirements. And throughout his earthly life, he did that in perfect obedience to God. He, he, he says, picking up the language of the Psalms, Behold, here I am, O God, I have come to do your will. And he did that will. What's so significant about that? Nobody had ever done that will perfectly from the heart until Jesus came and did it. And that proves that, of course, Jesus is not only God in human flesh, the God-man, but he alone can be a high priest who offers a perfect life in sacrifice to God upon the cross for sinners. He has to be a lamb without blemish, without fault without spot so as you reflect on his perfect obedience and life offered to god on your behalf don't say to god then well you should just really accept my best efforts no matter how far they fall short of god's perfection or don't say to god you should just be satisfied with my sincerity however sloppy my obedience no 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 say to god what god says delight in my son 
He came to be the one mediator between me and you so that you could, you could have a righteousness not of your own, that's by your own works, through works, but a righteousness that comes through faith, even the righteousness of Christ. And that active, practical, personal obedience of Christ and fulfillment of all righteousness ought to be a great comfort to you and me. If we know ourselves at all, As Christians, and our failures, our weaknesses, our shortcomings, we haven't done everything God called us to do. We have not loved the Lord our God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength every moment of every day, nor have we loved our neighbor as ourselves. You confess this if you're a Christian, don't you? You're a failure at love in so many ways. Jesus never failed. And his perfect love, his perfect righteousness, well, he's the righteous one. And we can be clothed in his righteousness. Do you see how he can satisfy you who hunger and thirst for righteousness by being your righteousness? But that's not all Jesus did. Jesus also fulfilled the law by offering up a perfect sacrifice to bear the curse Of a broken law, right? Galatians 3 verse 13, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. He fulfilled the law's demands and he bore the law's judgment. The judgment of a broken law that ought to fall on us fell on him as our substitute. And he exhausted the curse. He bore its penalty. On the cross, taking it away. Do you know the relief there is in being forgiven for your sins by God on the just basis of Jesus enduring what your sin deserves to take it fully away? Do you know the confidence of God saying, I am for you and not against you? Why? Because I was against my son upon the cross for you. Do you know that comfort? There's a third way Jesus fulfilled the law, of course, not only by obeying its precepts, not only by his perfect sacrifice for its uh, judgments, but also by his perfect teaching of the law of God, which is what Matthew 5 is going to point us to the rest of the way he explains it how it ought to be explained in contrast to the scribes and pharisees of the day who frankly got it wrong that's the meaning of as you track the six expressions over the rest of chapter five where jesus will say you have heard that it was said but i tell you jesus isn't contrasting himself with moses and the old testament law his way of speaking of the old testament would be you have heard that it was written But he says, you've heard that it was said because he's talking about the people who were talking on behalf of God and they were doing it wrongly. And he says, but I tell you, and and then he tells them the truth, right? So Calvin says, Jesus isn't standing here as a new legislator, but as a faithful expositor of God's law. Not giving a new moral law, not changing the moral law, faithfully though he is explaining the moral law. So he fulfilled the law and the prophets by what? By answering to the prophecies, by obeying its requirements, by exhausting its curse, by interpreting its meaning. And so he says, let's close up shop here on this first point. 
And so he says, look at verse 19, right? That whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. That must mean you must see him as supremely great in the kingdom of heaven. Nobody taught and did them the way that Jesus did. Do you say with the father about his son Jesus? Yes, Father, Jesus is your beloved son, and, and I too, with you, I am well pleased. I'm enamored with him. I'm in love with him for who he is and what he did. Thank you. So ought to be a reason to worship him. Now the second thing then is Jesus turns from his own relationship to the law of God, and then in verse 19 he says, now, now here is what ought to be the relationship of my disciples to the law of God. And what is that? We are to keep it and to teach it. Verse 19. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. He wants us all to be rightly related to the law of God. He says our place in the kingdom depends on it. Greatness in the kingdom is measured by conformity to the law. Jesus here doesn't say that all laws have equal weight. There are some weightier matters of the law. You remember Jesus criticizing the, the religious people of his day. who, You know, they tithe the mint and the dill out of their garden. Right? But they didn't care about like justice and mercy. And Jesus said you ought, to, you ought to have cared about the weightier matters of the law without giving up on the other. To paraphrase. And so here he says, even, uh, even with the least of these commandments, you will be called least for setting them aside. As a, another tells the story, imagine you work for a company whose president had to travel out of the country and spend an extended time abroad. And so he says to you and the other trusted employees, look, I'm going to leave. And while I'm gone, I want you to pay close attention to the business. You manage things while I'm away. I'll write to you regularly. And when I do, I'll instruct you in what you ought to do from now on until I return. And then he leaves. And then he's gone. And he stays for a couple of years abroad. And during that time, he communicates by letter his desires and his concerns. And finally, he returns. And he walks up to the front of the company. And he immediately discovers it's a mess. I mean, weeds flourishing in the flower beds, broken windows across the front of the building. Uh, the greeter at the front desk is dozing. Loud music is coming from behind the wall where uh, uh, two or three people are engaged in horseplay. And instead of making a profit, the business has suffered a great loss. And so without hesitation, he calls everybody together. And with a frown, he asks, what happened? Didn't you get my letters? And they say, yeah, sure, we got them. We bound them in a book and some of us have memorized them. And every Sunday we pull them out and read a little bit about them. They're really great letters. And then the president might ask, but, but did you do anything of what I said? And they might respond, do? Well, no, we didn't do anything but we read every one of them look if you set aside jesus says even the smallest instruction in scripture he doesn't say that's cool 
That's fine. No big deal. Doesn't matter to me. He says that makes you the least in the kingdom. And doing it isn't enough. He speaks of teaching it. Anybody who breaks the law of God and teaches others to break the law will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. I mean, now, at this point you're saying, am I hearing you say that Jesus makes distinctions between disciples in the kingdom of heaven? Yes, I believe that's what Jesus is teaching here. He says there are the least in the kingdom and there are the great. That ought to upend our view that if, if we think that everybody has the same place in the kingdom of heaven. I, Jesus isn't denying we get in by grace, and I'm not either. The whole Beatitudes tells you you don't deserve any of this. You have no resources in yourself. You're bankrupt. You're poor in spirit. You mourn for your sin. Right? You're, you don't get in by your works. You get in by grace, yet by that grace, we may be more or less faithful in our service and obedience. And God takes note of that, and God cares about that. It actually matters to him. You may not know the name of the greatest. I suspect that of all the Christians we've ever heard of in the history of the church, not one of them is actually the greatest in the kingdom under Jesus. It's possible the greatest in the kingdom of heaven is sitting here right now today. And you don't even suspect it because Jesus here isn't talking about a greatness based on your gifts or your talents. But your graces, not on what you do with your talents, but how you are obedient to his teaching. He cares about that. Down through the ages, people have made three mistakes, three great mistakes with regard to the instruction of Jesus about the law of God. And I want to highlight those three big mistakes that we so easily make. First, some people have tried to make the law of God into a ladder up which they climb so that they can satisfy God's demands and take their spot in heaven by their own attainment. These folks say things to themselves like, I've got to do everything I can to obey as much as possible and, and just hope that in the last day I will have done enough to please God. And that tragically is a common view both inside and outside the church of why God gave the moral law. And it's basically legalism. And it's not why God gave the moral law. That kind of view, though, is bound to frustrate us. For we might as well be climbing a ladder of sand and every step up finds no firm footing, just knocks us back down with every failure. This is a view of the law that's actually contrary to the gospel. And we need to learn to sing contrary to it. Not the labors of my hands could fulfill thy law's demands. Could my zeal no respite know? Could my tears forever flow? Thou must save and thou alone, all for sin. My works could not atone. Because the law is not a ladder to take you to heaven by your trying to achieve obedience to it. The law is instead what? Well, it's a number of things. It's a window. It's a window through which we see the glorious holiness of God in all his perfection. He's the great lover. 
and the righteous one. And the law is a mirror to show me the foulness of my heart by contrast. And it's a hammer, we might say, to humble the self-righteous pride in me. And it is a billboard to point me to Jesus, who alone could keep the law, bear its curse, and offer me salvation and forgiveness. So the first mistake is legalism. The second mistake is licentiousness or antinomianism, anti-law, license to sin kind of things. And it's an equally serious mistake, right? It's, it's by the Christian who says, look, I'm redeemed by grace, not by my works. I'm forgiven. I'm good. I can do whatever I want, even if it's contrary to God's law. It's okay. In other words, though we wouldn't say it this way, it's okay if I spit in the face of my father. That's just fine if I just keep on grieving the Holy Spirit without a care or concern for what he thinks. Some time ago, there was a Church of England bishop who preached a sermon in which he said, shoplifting is okay. If you are in a large department store owned by a large corporation, then it's okay. Why? Well, you know, that company really, they're just, you know, cutting down margins, hurting poor people. They're simply money-grubbing corporations without care for people running over them. But, 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 but if you're in a small store, you know, owned by a family, well, then shoplifting would be wrong. There was such, this was in the church. This was, there was such a public outcry against him by even the non-Christian public that the Home Secretary of Britain actually came out with a statement against the bishop. Why? It was just so obvious. The guy was undercutting the law, teaching other people to undercut the law in a way that, uh, that discounted everything God says across his entire word about loving your neighbor, which means not stealing his property. I mean, do you see that? We, we have been freed from the judgment of the law <clears throat> In order to keep it, not so that we can be free to just despise it and do whatever we want. We've been freed from the judgment of the law in order to pursue righteousness and, and learn to flee wickedness. And in many ways, you might ask yourself, is there evidence of that new love in your heart for what is good and right? It's actually an evidence of new birth, new life in Christ. When we say in our hearts with the psalmist, Oh, how I love your law, O God. Teach me your ways, O Lord. Help me walk in your paths, right? I mean, you know how it is when you fall in love with somebody. Let me just uh, change the word love to crush from my example from the worst sports mistake I ever made in seventh grade. Because it wasn't love. Seemed like it at the time. But I was in seventh grade. I had loved soccer from being, when I was very young, since I'd first encountered Pele, the barefoot South American soccer player who was too poor to own shoes, which is how he learned. And then he was, he was great. He was amazing. And, and I played, because my school system didn't have soccer, I played rec league soccer in third, fourth, fifth, I think sixth grade, and I was the best kid on my team. That's an honest assessment. 
except for the one kid who was from Australia, where they actually loved soccer, right? And so he had embraced it from the womb. But I was in Spanish class in seventh grade, sitting just catty corner from Jan Lashley, upon whom I had a massive crush, who had never given me the time of day. But she made an offhanded remark to somebody else about what a, well, I won't tell you what she said, but it, uh, she had a very negative view of soccer. And I quit soccer in my heart that day. I never got back to it until I was a junior in high school, and it was a little too late for playing on the high school team. I played some indoor sports rec with friends for fun, and it's the worst soccer decision I ever made. What a dummy I was. Why was there nobody wise to say, now why are you giving up soccer? You love that sport. But it's amazing what you'll do for a crush or for love. Well, what am I getting at? Have you begun to love a Savior who has loved you? Then one of the things you're going to want to do is find out what does he love? What pleases him? What, what interests him? What is he like? And you'll want to embrace those things too. Paul says, I delight in the law of God and the inward man. Now he goes on in Romans 7 to talk about how he fails to keep the law of God. He does fail, as every believer does. He fails to keep the truest longings of his heart. But he says, I can say, truly, I delight in the law of God. And so I'd ask you, is that you? Are you a disciple of Jesus? Well, there's legalism, there's antinomianism or license where you just despise the law of God. And thirdly, there's the great error of being a Christian thinking that God has left it up to you to obey his law on your own, under your own power. It is a great error to think you have the strength to do this. You know that steam engines, which rarely run anymore except for fun at places like Silver Dollar City or tourist attractions, but steam engines are designed to run on rails, but they also have a boiler, right, where coal is fed and and water is boiled, steam is created that pushes the machinery to cause forward thrust. The second thing they need not only is the boiler, but they need the rails to run on. They couldn't properly work without either of those two things the steam in the boiler what we're saying is the holy spirit who works in us both to will and to work for god's good pleasure but we also need rails to run on we need to know which direction to go and the rail is the law of god telling me how to love god and love others as i live for him disciples jesus say will keep the law and none of that is a burden to the believer because verses 17 and 18 he has already fulfilled the righteous requirements of the law on our behalf so verses 18 and uh, 19 and 20 he is then fulfilling in us by his spirit those same righteous requirements he hasn't left it for us to work it out on our own now the last thing and very much more briefly then is his critique of the scribes and Pharisees' relationship to the law, and then his contrast for disciples, in which he says basically their view was way too superficial, 
and unacceptable. Verse 20, for I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. You know, perhaps, that the scribes and Pharisees had added up all the Old Testament commandments they could find, and they found 248 positive requirements and 365 negative prohibitions. And people thought the scribes and the Pharisees did the best job of keeping those things. In fact, there was a saying in Israel in Jesus' day, if only two men get to heaven, surely one of them will be a scribe and the other will be a Pharisee. And Jesus looks at those people and he says to his disciples, your righteousness must exceed theirs. And Jesus doesn't mean, you know, they've really kept 300 of them pretty well, but you've got to keep 400 or you're not in. He isn't talking about quantity here. He isn't, he isn't saying they had some righteousness but not enough. You just need a little more. No, no, no. He's saying they didn't have the true kind of righteousness you need. You need the real thing. Theirs was skin deep as the illustrations will show as we walk through the rest of the chapter. It didn't cut to the heart. It didn't flow out of the heart. It was superficial. It was on the outside. It was external. I haven't murdered anybody. I'm righteous before God. And Jesus says, are you ever unjustly angry at anybody? (laughs) It's a different kind of righteousness, in other words, Jesus is getting at. Not just more of the same. But so you and I need two things to belong to the kingdom of heaven. We need Jesus to be for us all our righteousness. He's the only perfection worthy of heaven. And we need Jesus to work in us his righteousness so that from the heart we begin to love what he loves. And that is promised to us in the gospel. It was promised even in the Old Testament, Jeremiah 31. I will put my law upon them, within them and I will write it on their hearts, God said. Ezekiel 36, I will put my spirit within you, cause you to walk in my statutes. Be careful to obey my rules. In other words, where the Spirit of God is, there the law is written on the heart. And that's why you can't enter the kingdom of heaven without a righteousness that exceeds that of the scribe and Pharisee. Because you need the kind of righteousness which shows that the work of the Spirit has written the law of God on your heart. The kind of righteousness which is a work of God's grace. And so I just ask you, do you have that? You only do if you have Jesus as your Savior and Lord. And if Jesus has you, which is another way of saying the same thing. You belong to him and he belongs to you. So trust in him to save you from your sins and your self-righteousness. And you will have all the righteousness you need in him. Let's pray. Father. Uh, Thank you for the good gift of your beloved son. And thank you that you love us so much you don't leave us like we are. You determined to make us more like Jesus and finally to make us fully like him in heaven. Help us to long for that. Help us to hope in that. Help us to aim for that and by your spirit work to that end. And forgive all our failures along the way. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Amen. Let's stand and sing.